KBLA Talk 1580. It is a pleasure to introduce our guest today for a deep dive. Um, she is a physician, a thought leader, and a sought-after speaker on bias and racism in medicine and healthcare. Uh, she's a founder of Advancing Health Equity, founded in 2019 with the goal of partnering with healthcare organizations to dismantle racism in healthcare and close the gap in racial health inequities. Uh, she's been recognized by Forbes magazine, Forbes magazine as one of 10 diversity and inclusion trailblazers you need to get familiar with. Uh, in 2020, she was one of 31 inaugural leaders awarded an unrestricted grant for advocacy work from the Black Voices for Justice Fund. She's received all kinds of awards and honors, including the American Medical Women's Association 2021 Presidential Award, the 2021 Harvard Humanist of the Year, and the NAACP Brooklyn Chapter 2022 Valiant Service Award. Dr. Uche Blackstock, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Excited to have you on. I should have mentioned the book, Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine, is out uh, right now. came out uh, last month, so um, congratulations yes. on that. Thank you so much, and it is a New York Times bestseller. Uh, it was on the list for two weeks, so I wanted to make sure I mentioned that because it means that people care very, very deeply about the issues that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, it also means it's a good book. <laughs> that's, always, that's always a plus. <laughs> Thank you. That too. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and you're used to making history. Um, your mom is a physician and you're a physician, um, highly unusual in a black family for sure. And your sister as well. Yes. And my, my twin sister Oni, and we are the first black mother daughter legacy graduates from Harvard medical school. That's a huge deal. Um, and it kind of opens the door to some of what you talk about in this book. When one of the, you know, bases of our, challenges, I guess you could say, in getting appropriate and equitable care is the fact that there are hardly any black doctors. And there's a reason for that, right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. And so, you know, I wrote this book to help connect the dots for a broad audience for people to understand why in 2024, less than 6% of physicians are black, why we see the really appalling racial health inequities like the high black maternal mortality rate that we see today, despite advances in innovation, technology, and research. And one of the reasons for the, the dearth, the lack of black physicians, is a report that I talk about in my book called the Flexner Report of 1910 that I did not learn about in medical school. I did not learn about in, in residency training. I learned about as a practicing physician and it was a report commissioned by the American Medical Association and Carnegie Mellon Foundation. They uh, commissioned a education specialist named Abraham Flexner to assess all 155 U.S. and Canadian medical schools and to hold them against the criteria of Western European schools, medical schools, and Johns Hopkins here in the United States, which is the, the gold standard. And it led to the closing of of several medical schools, but it also led to the closing of five out of seven of the historically black colleges and universities, those medical schools, leaving behind Howard and Meharry. It's estimated if those five medical schools had remained open, they would have trained between 25,000 
and 35,000 black physicians. So those are tens of thousands of black doctors that are just gone. That would never exist. Gone. Yes, yes. And can you imagine how many patients they would have cared for? Well, and and I think you say in the book that there's only like 46,000 right now in the U.S., yeah, I mean, and, and there are so few of us. And can I just also make a comment? Because the historically black colleges and universities, Howard and Meharry, are still the medical schools that are putting out the most black physicians, even today in 2024, compared to all of the other predominantly white institutions. They are still carrying the highest burden of educating black physicians. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't aware of the Flexner report until actually uh, talking with um, officials from the uh, CDU, uh, Charles Drew School here in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. which right. recently opened a medical school. And they were just putting yes. it in context of how this is such a need for uh, for black uh, would be doctors. Exactly. And the, and the thing is, most people have not heard of the Flexner Report. Most practicing doctors, like we don't learn about this in medical school. We don't learn about it in any of our training. It's kind of, I talk about in the book, this process that I had to do of unlearning and relearning the history and recognizing the educational gaps that I had in my education and training where I did not learn a lot of things like about the Flexner Report that helps explain why today we have so few Black doctors. Yeah, um, and that's important, not just because we want representation. It impacts the quality of care, right? Exactly, and that's the important part. Yes, it can. The the fact is, is for Black patients especially, who takes care of us is a matter of life and death. We have data that shows that when there is racial concordance, when you have a Black doctor and Black patient, that health outcomes improve. Patients are more likely to follow the doctor's recommendations. They're more likely to take their medications. Um, They're more likely to leave that patient-doctor interaction with a more positive feeling. You know, we have data that shows that Black patients are often talked over by, by, by their doctors. They're, they're interrupted many more times than white patients are. <laughs> so we have, we have, we have and, I, and I know people who are listening in have experienced this. Yeah. I mean, that's why I'm laughing, but I'm just not the one to talk over because I'm a talk radio host. So I'm going to circle back to my (laughs) point again. But most people won't do that. I think also the whole white coat thing, you know, intimidates a lot of people. I can't talk back. That's a doctor. Oh, exactly. And that's why, you know, in the book, in Legacy, I talk about these, you know, these stories that we've heard about. Serena Williams, you know, who is the greatest athlete of all time, who is, affluent, who is a professional athlete and knows her body so well, even Serena Williams tried to speak up and tell her team about the symptoms she was having that were similar to a blood clot she had before, and they did not listen to her. So you can imagine what, you know, you know, the average black person that's going in to see their doctor, how they feel about speaking up. You know, I even talk about in my book about how as a first year medical student, I had appendicitis. I had to go to the ER three times to to Harvard Teaching Hospital before I was correctly diagnosed. By that time, my appendix had ruptured. I had had to miss a month of medical school. But during those visits, I was questioned about my sexual history repeatedly. I was told that I didn't seem to be in that much pain. And even my, my twin sister was there with me on the first visit, and she said, I think you have appendicitis. 
Mm. Even we did not feel we did not feel empowered to speak up. Yeah, great points all. The book Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. Um, You know, your mom was a doctor. You talk about how you were exposed to, um, you know, obviously you you went and visited her when she was working at the hospital, you and your twin sister. You guys played in her medical bag. And obviously it was part of your your upbringing. Um, And still, um, at you know, you say that you're not sure you would want your children to be doctors because of the toxic racial environment that they would face, especially as, as, you know, young men going into, black men going into the system. It's it's heartbreaking for me to hear that. I know, I know. And, and writing this book was was heartbreaking, but I also wanted to affirm the experiences of black patients and black doctors you know, I have this lived experience as a black woman, as a black mother of two little boys. Um, But I've had these experiences in the healthcare system as both a patient and a physician that makes me, that gives me pause, you know, to think about already, actually today, today, there's a smaller percentage of black male physicians than there, than there was in the early 1900s. That's crazy. I know, I know. What we can tell from that is that that environment, the healthcare environment, medical schools, is a toxic environment for young black men and for older black men. You know, and so how could I even think about putting my children, <laughs> you know, I, I, I say in the book, throwing them to the wolves essentially. Yeah. I mean and I can relate. I, you know, I have a I'm the mom of a a black teenage boy and just, you know, by just choosing to put him in elite schools because I wanted him to have the best mm. education. In in hindsight, I say, was it worth the trauma that Ooh, I subjected I my child to being in that environment of constant microaggressions and uh, fairly regular macroaggressions and how that shapes a person's, you know, uh, whole you know, who they are. It, it's, I mean, it's, I haven't even figured out if I made the right decision and he's off to college now. Right. You know, Tommy said that is, that is, that, that really um, resonates with me because I think about even my parents, you know, my mother, you know, I talk about in the book, she grew up here in Brooklyn where I am. Um, so a single mom on public assistance. My mother had five other siblings. She really struggled. She struggled a lot. My father is originally from Jamaica also grew up in poverty, they came here and, you know, they, they I mean, he, they wanted to make things better for us. And my parents gave my twin sister and me so much, so many opportunities, but they also put us in these predominantly white schools right. starting from middle school on, right? And so, yes, we ended up going to Harvard undergrad and Harvard medical school. But at the same time, you know, and I, as I write in the book, we, we still had these toxic interactions, these micro macroaggressions, racism that we had to deal with. And I wonder sometimes, you know, you know, um, I'm not sure if I mentioned, but you know, my, our mother passed away when we were only 19 years old. Yes, she was so 47. Yeah, um, I know from acute acute myelogenous leukemia. But I wonder, you know, I think my mother wanted to give us so much of what she didn't have. But then in the process, we end up in these environments that don't value us, don't appreciate us, right? Don't honor our humanity, don't respect us. 
And so I also struggle with that in terms of my children. I want to have them in predominantly black environments, but at the same time, you're like, okay, I also want them to get a quality education. And that may not always be the case in our neighborhoods because of the legacy of racism. Well, yeah, we could do a whole show on that, but we won't. <laughs> We're yeah. talking with Dr. Yeah. Uche Blackstock. Legacy, a black physician reckons with racism in medicine is her book. And you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. A safe place to go loud, loud. A great place for progressive politics. KBLA Talk 1580. The GI Bill. Thanks for waking up with Dominique DePrima on KBLA Talk 1580. And we're talking with Uche um, Blackstock, who is uh, doing some great work um, in the space of diversity. Um, she uh, former faculty director of recruitment, retention, and inclusion in the Office of Diversity Affairs at the NYU School of Medicine. She's got her undergrad and her medical degrees from Harvard, and she has a book out right now. Um Dr. Blackstock, you, you brought it up and you mentioned, you mentioned, you share with us the story in your book of your mom uh, passing away from leukemia at the young age of 47. Um, and, you know, your mom, of course, a, a physician, uh, and you and your twin sister, both physicians. And it seems like from what I read that this is, could have been the result of environmental racism, environmental injustice, right, with her having come up in areas that were, you know, seeped in radiation from Superfund sites that were never properly cleaned up. Talk a little bit about that whole tragedy, if you would. I know, I know. And it's only like, you know, when I was 19, I say that the rug was pulled from underneath me to have this this person who was my number one fan, the, the best mama, like just so loving, um, to have her diagnosed and then to die after, you know, her di- eight months after her diagnosis and so young um, at 47 was was tragic. But, you know, as I was writing the book and, and, and doing research, you know, the book is, you know, my personal story, my mom's story in a lot of historical context. You know, I thought back to when my mother got a second opinion after she was diagnosed with leukemia at uh, the Dana-Farber Institute, which is a cancer center in Brooklyn, and in, in, in Boston, rather. And the radiologist said to her, it looks like your chromosomes, your karyotype, it looks like it was, you had been ex- you were exposed to radiation at a young age. And looking back at the neighborhoods that my mother lived in, you know, they were, they were sites of, of toxic dumping um, in, in central Brooklyn. And so it's very, very likely because the kind of cancer she got is very rare for someone her age, for a, a, a black woman her age, um, to develop it. It's usually older white men. So, um, you know, thinking about the fact that my mother, because, you know, she was li- living in poverty, you know, living in neighborhoods that had been redlined, living in neighborhoods that had been, you know, had toxic dumping and were super fun sites, um, that could have contributed to her early death. And it, one of the reasons I bring it up, and I'm, I'm just, I'm really sorry. I know it's been a long time for you, but I, we don't get over the loss of our moms. Um, <clears throat> is that it, it really highlights the intersection between, you know, the climate emergency and, and the environmental um, justice movement yes. and the, and our yes. health and well-being, our, you know, our medical um, thriving. Yes. And, um, you know, I, often people say, you know, the climate climate crisis is, is, a, is a racial justice issue. And that's because actually we know as a result of 
uh, discriminatory housing policies like redlining, you know, our neighborhoods have fewer trees, less canopy. Our neighborhoods are actually several degrees warmer than other neighborhoods that have not been redlined. And what that actually does is it actually contributes to preterm labor. Mm. It actually contributes also to worsening of asthma symptoms and respiratory diseases. So, you know, when we think about, you know, what are the issues impacting our communities, we, we have to think about the impact of, of the climate crisis on the health of the people in our communities. And it's so wonderful to see, actually, in Philadelphia, there's a young Black woman who is working with her with her nonprofit on increasing the amount of canopy, the green, the green space in her neighborhood in Philly, um, in order to counteract these neighborhoods that have been so deprived of resources, including green space, uh, and that now contributes to our poor health. I want to circle back to the personal part of that, though. I mean, losing your mama as a young teenager, and then you go on and complete your your education at Harvard, complete medical school. Do you think, I mean, was it, I have to do this now to honor my mother, or was it um, a situation where maybe it just became more difficult? You know, you know, something, um, when I was growing up in Brooklyn, and I read this in a book that I thought most physicians were black, I thought they mostly, mostly were black women, that is who I was exposed to growing up. My not only my mother, <laughs> but my pediatrician. My pediatrician was a black woman. We had my we had black doctors on my block. My mother led a local black woman physician organization. So in my head, in my sister's head, you know, we thought this was, you know, we see these brilliant black women doing wonderful things in service to our community, organizing community health fairs we are going to, we're going to do this too. And so starting from a very young age, I knew that I wanted to become a doctor. I knew it because I saw the relationship that my mother had with her patients. I saw how much they loved her, how much she loved them. And I said, I want to do this. Um, and then when we got older and, you know, we experienced, you know, her, her, her premature death and we were already pre-med, we were already pre-med. And I actually found a letter that my mother wrote us, but she never gave to us while she was sick. And in the letter that she says, make sure you take care of each other, take care of your father, take care of your aunt and uncle, and make sure you go to medical school. <laughs> so, you know, my, you know, she wasn't playing. She knew, like, she knew what she wanted us to do. But I also will say that as I've gotten older, you know, as a practicing physician, making all those realizations about what's happening in our communities due to interpersonal and systemic racism, I see that the work that my mom was doing in the 80s and 90s with her colleagues it's the same work that I want to do now, um, but, you know, in, in a way that elevates her memory, her legacy, um, and that works in service to our community. So it almost was like, um, of course, of course, I would continue to do this work. And I think her death, losing her, made this work even more important to me. Mm. Yeah, we have uh, folks that listen on YouTube, youtube.com, KBLA 1580. And uh, the forensic accountant wants to know, and I think I frame this in the, in the fact that there are so many, there are um, ailments that hit black people harder. Um, breast mm -hmm, cancer mm -hmm. is one of them. Um, the forensic accountant asks you if there's any recent advancements in, in breast cancer screenings. And I just think of how much more aggressive it is in black women. Yeah, so, so so one of the issues with 
so there's several issues with breast cancer in Black women. One is that often there's a delayed diagnosis, so it's often caught in a more advanced, and that's because of you know lack of access to care, lack of access to culturally responsive care, um, you know lack of screening. So that's one piece of it. But and this is the and the other piece of it is that there is a thought, and this is you know a, while we know that race is a social construct and is not biological. There are certain types of breast cancers that, for Black women, are more aggressive in us. And there's a lot of research to understanding why that's the case. Um, but that's another piece of it. So we have all of these factors that really lead to um, Black women having a higher mortality from breast cancer than white women. They're 40% more likely to die from breast cancer than white women are. But that speaks to the that speaks to the fact that we really need preventive preventive care. We need to have a culturally responsive healthcare system. And I also say access to healthcare and being insured is another racial justice issue because we are disproportionately uninsured or underinsured. We're talking with Dr. Uche Blackstock. Uh, you can call if you got a question, 800-920-1580, 800-920-1580. we got news, traffic, and sports right now. We'll continue the conversation when we come forward, um, of course, I have to ask you about DEI and what it's going to take uh, to keep these opportunities open uh, to black people during this period of contraction and backlash against those ideas. KBLA Talk 1580. She's reclaiming her time on KBLA Talk 1580. More First Things First with Dominic DePrima when we come forward. Find a righteous range and don't be afraid to say what you see. We're KBLA Talk 1580. We are and we're having a really captivating conversation uh, with author and medical doctor Uche Blackstock, MD. The book Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. Front page of the L.A. Times today, Dr. Blackstock, there is an article about how the pulse oximeters that we were uh, mo- most of us found out about <laughs> during the height of the COVID um, lockdown as a means of, you know, telling uh, whether how we were doing um, as it pertains to the impact of COVID um, doesn't really work that well on black people or people with darker skin, people of color. Um, the The story goes on to, t- it talks about how um, one um, doctor uh, found out about this and started looking into it and realized, um, Dr. Noah Abuleta, that this research went all the way back to 1990, showing that this device inaccurately, often inaccurately says that black pe- people or darker skinned people have higher oxygen levels in their blood than we actually do, which could be a deadly mistake. And she started looking into it, and yet she said nothing was done. The clinic filed a lawsuit against uh, CVS, Walgreens, and GE Healthcare, and nine other companies in California. This was last year. This lawsuit um, was filed. Talk to me about how you see this and how this is is or isn't symptomatic of the kinds of things that happen in the healthcare system pertaining to the care of black patients. Yes, yes, um, Dominique, you know, I, I actually I write about the pulse oximeters in, in legacy in this issue. And that, you know, for most, even myself as a practicing physician, you know, as that doc, as the doctor pointed out, you know, I did not know this has been an issue 
for almost 30 years that the FDA was aware of this inaccuracy in how pulse oximeters measure oxygen in darker skinned patients. Um, and that, you know, we weren't even told, hey, by the way, this is a problem. We, and it's a problem because when they were designing these pulse oximeters, they were not using a diverse patient population. They were using mostly white patients. And so what we saw in the pandemic, it's, it's so appalling. We saw that there were Black patients and other patients of color who did not receive the medications that they qualified for based on their oxygen level because the oxygen, the pulse oximeter overestimated what their oxygen level was. So they actually had a lower oxygen level, needed medications like remdesivir and dexamethasone, which would have actually helped them. And people have died because of this inaccuracy in the pulse oximeters and the fact that practicing physicians didn't know. But you add on to that the fact that health professionals we know do not listen to black patients. So even if the pulse oximeter was reading a normal value, if the patient was saying, I still don't feel well, I'm still feeling short of breath, that should be taken into context, right? And so we know that many black patients were ignored. We know black patients died as a result of this. And it just compounds the, the racism that is already that already happens when black patients interface with the healthcare system. Mm. Yeah. So what do we, um, as consumers of healthcare, you know, what do we do about it? I mean, other than just being stubborn and advocating for ourselves, what, what do we I know. do about it? So Dominique, this is a question that, you know, I feel like I hate to have to answer, but I have to answer because I feel like we should not have to feel like we're going to war mm. when we're seeking care. Mm -hmm. when we are at our most vulnerable, that this is a systemic problem. However, of course, there always are pointers that I give to our patients. So for example, you know, there was a viral, there's a viral TikTok video recently of a white male physician who said, I want to know why my black patients always have someone on FaceTime when they come in for an appointment with me. Hello, that is because they don't trust you. <laughs> and that's because, right, and I tell, I tell our patients, either bring someone with you, a family member, a friend, a loved one with you to the appointment, one for surveillance to make sure that you are getting the care that you deserve. But we also know when you're not feeling well, you may need someone else to, um, you know, ask questions on your behalf or just to provide moral support. So always bring someone with you when you go to the doctor. I think that's very important. The other thing is really to keep track of what your symptoms are, to write down what, what they are, the duration of them, how they have changed. Um, make sure you, you have notes and you come in with your notes to your doctor's appointment because often you're not feeling well or you may get anxious. You may forget what your symptoms have been. Also ask the doctor, what do you think is going on with me? They should have a response. What is your plan for me? What is the follow-up? What are the symptoms or concerning signs that I should return or go to the ER for? What do you think is going on, right? So those are the things that you should have. And then also I think that if you feel like you're not being listened to by this health professional, you should feel free to get a second and third opinion. Yeah. I think that is also very important. Don't, don't be scared to do that. And finally, I also want to say, and I want to amplify that there are Black women-led 
resources out there. There is a, a website called Health in Her Hue that is for um, black women looking for culturally responsive health professionals as a directory. There is the Earth app, I-R-T-H, for people looking for maternal health professionals um, that, again, can provide culturally responsive care to black patients. So again, we are sort of creating the solutions that we need in our communities to make sure that we receive the best care possible. Yeah, you know, it's funny too. I I have consistently requested um, from, you know, my insurers or whatever, I want to, we want black doctors. And I have been shocked at how <laughs> uncooperative folks are when I ask that. And, and they seem to be taken aback. We prefer a black right. physician, please. Yes. And, and you know what? Like I said, having a black physician literally is a matter of life and death. For us, even myself as a black physician, I look for black health professionals for myself. <laughs> you know, so that tells you something, right? Like I know what it's like to be a physician. I know what it's like to be a patient. And I still want a black provider. Right. I mean, the, the, the I think it was last year the study came out that showed, you know, infants have higher survival rates with black attending physician that to me i they you know Listen. they they don't they can tell me they don't know why i don't care i need a black doctor <laughs> yes exactly i mean that is all you need to know right the studies showed yeah. that that black babies cared for by black neonatologists were more likely to survive than those cared for by white neonatologists there was also a study that came out last year that showed that if there's even one black primary care physician in a U.S. county, improved the life expectancy for black people living in that county. Wow, I did not see that. That's incredible. That's incredible. So when you when you take note of the, the attacks on DEI, I mean, at starting mm -hmm. with your own alma mater, but mm -hmm. uh, uh, throughout mm -hmm. the country, I mean, mm -hmm. you see it in, uh, you see it in, you know, Florida really taking the lead in banning DEI. Um, yes. How do you, how do you receive that? How do you process that? Yeah, I mean, we are, we are essentially, again, at war. There are these insidious, sinister forces at work. As you mentioned, we saw it with, um, uh, with President Claudine Gay at Harvard. And, and just so you know, as, a, as an alumna, I was um, nominated to be chief marshal at my 25th reunion um, in, 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 in June. And I told them to take my name off the ballot because I was very disappointed with the lack of support that she received. Wow. So all that to say is that, yeah, I mean, this is how I feel like we, in our small ways, can make a difference. But for example, like the recent SCOTUS decision on race-conscious admissions mm -hmm. to higher education, that is going to have the same impact for generations to come on Black health professionals, because we know that's going to, that can impact pre-med students, medical students, the diversity of what they look like. And so I think we need to have all hands on deck. We need to be organizing. We need to be working with legal organizations. Just so you know, there are groups out there. There's a group called Do No Harm. They are suing the California Medical Board because the medical board requires implicit bias training for physicians. They are saying that physicians don't need implicit bias training. Mm. That, that's in California. So there are multiple forces at work. I think that we need to work with our policymakers. We need to work with our professional organizations because we literally are going to see all of the advances rolled back. And the fact is, is that 
it is more dangerous for, for black people to become pregnant today than it was, sorry, than it was 20 years ago. Right. That's so, insane. so we are going to see the wor- we are going to see the worsening of health inequities. Mm. And so this is a life or death issue for us. And so we need to organize. We need to work with um, legal advocacy, legal professionals around these insidious actions that are happening. Talking with Dr. Uche, Blackstock, MD. And uh, when we come forward, want to talk about, um, you know, what will it take? In the environment that we're in right now, you know, all the obstacles and more obstacles being erected as we speak, what will it take to get more black doctors in the pipeline? You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. More of First Things First with Dominique DePrima when we come forward. We're not for everybody, but we're for everybody. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Uh, talking with Dr. Uche, Blackstock MD. Um, certainly you've risen to the highest levels of your profession and uh, got a New York Times best-selling book here in Legacy. A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. Um, and, you know, I, I can't recall the name of the group. There's a group here in L.A. of black physicians who are trying to make things easier for folks who've already um, gone through medical school and are going into their residencies and are highlighting the racism and the obstacles to even completing a residency. Um, so apparently that pipeline is fraught from beginning to end uh, for those black people that aspire to be doctors. What ought to be done or what ought we be doing to remove those obstacles and, you know, increase the Mm -hmm. number of black physicians? Yes. So such a great question. And it's, it's, you know, the the change is not going to happen overnight, unfortunately. So, you know, there actually are two medical schools. So Xavier and Morgan State are opening medical schools in the next few years. So, you know, that they're, they're historically black colleges and universities. So that is great. But we know that that is only part of the solution and they cannot carry the burden. Um, I think that there really needs to be collaborations between academic medical centers, medical schools, and, and, and our local government, state government, in terms of investing in the pipeline of black health professionals. And what this looks like is exposing children as young as preschool and nursery school to health professions. Not only that, but but providing mentor, mentorship, providing sponsorship with different opportunities, but also providing financial, I don't want to say even assistance, providing grants, ensuring that because we know because of the legacy of racism that there is lack of generational wealth, that is one issue that really prevents us from going to medical school, even affording college. Um, so I think there needs to be collaboration. And I, I write in my final chapter called to action that there needs to be an investment at the federal level in the black health professional pipeline. That is one, an obligation of academic medical centers, and that should be an obligation of our government that our workforce represents the people that it's caring for. And so I also call on policymakers to think about health in all policies. And so when they're thinking about, the, they should think about the pipeline, but also think about how to make our neighborhoods healthier because we know what happens at a neighborhood level, we call the social determinants of health, is actually the biggest impact on health of our communities. 
Mm. All right, I want to squeeze in Randy from Watts real quick here. Hi, Randy, you're on with Dr. Che Blackstock. Welcome. Beautiful, beautiful show this morning. Uh, uh, kudos to the doctor. Uh, I, I lost my mom at 47 also behind emphysema. And the reality of our communities getting better, uh, Dominique, within two weeks, you and I have talked about this problem of our canopies and not be enough trees that we should be replacing. I've counted over, I'm coming down to 405 right now back in the L.A. I've counted over 100 dead trees here alongside the freeway that have been there for years. They haven't fell over. We, you know, and okay, with, Randy, with where are you going doing? with this? Do you have a question? For, uh, and, and by the way, I did we not should, know that about your mom, and I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that. Yeah. We, mm. we, should, we should make an effort for replanting with, with, with the concept of what, you, of what Tavis is doing on this environmental awareness. Yep. We should look at all avenues on replanting trees and reforesting our areas. Dr. Blackstock, what are your thoughts on that? No, oh, I absolutely agree. Like when, when I talk about help in all policies, this is what I mean. I mean, we just need to think about what our communities look like in terms of green space. We know that also will contribute to people being more likely to exercise, having places to spend time just being outside um, in the sun. But we also know that has direct impact on health. The canopy is crucial to lowering the temperature in our communities, which we know will help um, prevent additional health issues for our community members. And when we come forward, we'll have some uh, some conclusional, some conclusive <laughs> thoughts from Dr. Uche Blackstock. Um, I'm Dominique DePrima, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. The station you turn to when you've had it up to here with cultural incompetence. KBLA Talk 1580. I see. The conversation continues right now, right now, right now with now, Dominique now. DePrima on First Things First. first. Things first. Speaking with Dr. Uche um, Blackstock, you have um, chosen to, you know, take your knowledge, uh, your your family uh, legacy um, as doctors and community organizers, and your knowledge to bring the word to the public about, you know, the disparities uh, in, in healthcare in this country. And it seems like the COVID pandemic made those things more clear, made them more stark uh, and noticeable. Is there, is there good coming out of that? Are these, you know, incredible inequities starting to at least be recognized and, and on the path to shifting, partly because of a horror that we saw during the coronavirus? Dominique, yeah, I will say by nature, I am an optimist, <laughs> you know, um, but, you know, I know you would, you, you'll agree with this, like, there's so much more work that needs to be done. One of the reasons why I'm so glad that my book Legacy is out there is because I really want for a broad audience for, to help folks connect the dots to why in 2024, I, as you know, a Harvard undergrad and, med and medical school graduate, I'm still five times more likely to die of pregnancy-related complications than my white peers. And there is nothing, there's, it isn't because there is inherently in wrong, anything wrong with me or with Black people. There is something inherently wrong with the social institutions in our country. Uh, you know, we have to name systemic racism and interpersonal racism. I want to be able to you know, instead of having these conversations in our academic silos, have them out in the public so that 
people in our communities, health professionals, policymakers understand what is their role in making a difference because we should not be seeing the statistics that we're seeing today in this country. It is appalling. And Black people, we deserve to live long, full, beautiful lives. And that is just not the case currently in this country. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's... There's so many pieces to that. Um, but why do you think that the advocacy, why are you choosing this, this, the microphone right now um, a, as you're, you know, whether it's on TV or on the radio or wherever you yes. might be um, as, yes. as a place to make a difference? Yes. Well, I feel like, you know, I, I have, I can have the biggest impact um, as a black physician, hearing our voices out, you know, it's so rare for many people who see me on air. It's the first time we've seen a black doctor speaking on these issues. So I feel like given my the legacy, my mother's legacy, right, given the work that she was doing in our community, I feel like, you know, like I said, we deserve to live long, full lives. And if I have the platform to bring attention to these issues, then I am going to use that platform for good. Well, we really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and your platform uh, on our platform today. Um, Dr. Blackstock, tell us how to keep up with you and, and, you know, participate and know about all the things you're doing. Yes, thank you so much. So two websites, one um, just about me, the author and speaker, uh, it's www.ucheblackstock.com, my name. And then for my, we didn't get to talk about it, but I have a health equity consulting firm that I started when I left academic medicine called Advancing Health Equity. It's www.advancinghealthequity.com. We work with healthcare and public health organizations to dismantle bias and racism in healthcare. I call it, it's my third baby. Um, and so <laughs> I really do a lot of the, a lot of the work that I wanted to do in academic medicine, I'm now able to do it my way authentically with organizations that want to put in the, the time and resources into making a difference. Right. Not everybody is succumbing to the backlash. AdvancingHealthEquity.com. Right. Dr. Blackstock, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation with you, Dominique.